This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, please come on by. I know it's the dog days of summer. Check out our wares, and um, hopefully you'll become a paid member of the Dispatch community. So uh, today, I'm very excited to have um, one of the smartest people I know. One of the there there is a there's a very um, there's a there's a informal network of people that i consider to be because it's, it's it's most of my listeners think i'm a sort of conservative intellectual history dork um i always like pointing out to them that there's a network of people out there that i i consider conservative intellectual history dorks that make me look like a normal person and <laughs> one of them is okay we're not going to just talk about all that he's been on the show before but we mostly talked about his favorite subject well the marriage of two of his favorite subjects which is sort of like uh which is marijuana and federalism and it was it was sort of like the reese's peanut butter cup of topics he wrote a book called marijuana federalism and it was like dude you got your marijuana and my federalism dude you got your federalism on my marijuana and it was the perfect thing for him and anyway he is back he is jonathan adler he's a professor of law at i'm blanking at at case no at case western reserve university which is has the weird name because there were two universities that merged Oh, okay. I did not. I did not know that. The Case uh, Institute of Technology and the Western Reserve University decided they should become one, and so, so as not to piss off the alumni of either institution. I see. Um, so they can continue to raise money from both. They created the hybrid name instead of choosing one over the other. An explanation offered that you would expect from a tenured professor. So uh, <laughs> you also. You, back in in the in the 90s you were a fixture of think tank world before you went off to uh law school um and you're one of the few people i know who went off to law school came back who could still see the reflection in a mirror which is nice um and so uh why don't we start with like law stuff for a second sure before we get into the eggheadery law is good and um uh this this m- this uh what you might call it uh the moratorium on evictions that the cdc put out that uh biden then admitted was he wanted to renew it but he admitted it was unconstitutional or against the law or the bulk of scholars thought it was against the law i just wrote my la times column about this um first of all what did you think of the moratorium was it in fact do you think the supreme court was right that it was that it was illegal um, and then what did you think about Biden's maneuver before we get into the weeds on it? Yeah, so um, 
I, so let me look back. I think that uh, the original CDC moratorium was not legal. It was not authorized by Congress. Congress did not delegate that power to the CDC. Um, and some courts held that. Some other courts uh, did not. The Supreme Court technically did not rule on that question. Um, the Supreme Court technically ruled on whether or not the policy had to be stopped when it was on the verge of expiring on its own. And we know that four justices would have voted to stop it, which indicates that they thought it was illegal. And we know a fifth justice, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, said, I, I think it's illegal, but there are equitable reasons why we should just let it expire. Um, so it looks like we can count to five Supreme Court justices who, who agree that it's, it's illegal, but they didn't actually hold that, right? So there isn't an actual binding precedent there is just a very clear indication that one of the five justices who wanted to let the moratorium expire on its own was doing so for what we refer to as equitable reasons, not because he thought it was valid on the merits. Uh, and so, um, and I think that that um, that that part of it was a tough call, but I think that uh, under existing doctrine and certainly under my view of the nature of how Congress gives power to agencies. The CDC has a lot of power. Uh, the power to uh, uh, prohibit evictions um, is not one of them. Yeah, I mean, on on our uh, law podcast, Advisory Opinion, Sarah Isger actually read the passage from the law that basically says the HHS secretary and the designated underlings, whatever, appropriate underlings, in order to stop the spread of an infectious disease that is coming from abroad, that is in a, a, a holding a possession or a state of the United States, from spreading to another state or another possession, is basically everything or anything they so choose, right? I mean, that's how does how does that stay on the books for so long? That well, so it's very broad, but then, so I mean, the the structure of the language is the CDC, well, or the you know the the health authorities. It's then since been delegated to the CDC have the authority to enact regulations to prevent the spread. And then to implement and enforce these regulations, here are the sorts of things they can do. And the things they list are all things about people and articles and animals, things that could be uh, vectors of spread uh, controlling those things, right? So could you order quarantines? Could you order the destruction of diseased cattle? That kind of stuff. Um, the regulation, the old regulation that's on the books, essentially repeats the statutory authorization and says, yeah, these are the things we might order when we have to. And the CDC then said, okay, now we are ordering, we're not even issuing a new regulation, an eviction moratorium. Well, an eviction moratorium is not one of the things that are listed. And often when we read statutes, we say, if a legislature says, you can do lots of things, including A, B, C, and D, We'll say, okay, if you if if E or F look a lot like A, B, C, and D. Right. If we say you can kill cows, maybe you can kill sheep too, even though we didn't mention sheep. Right. Right. That kind of thing. Right. Right. And when we say you can do anything necessary to achieve this purpose, such as, you know, killing cows, sheep, and goats, we'd say, well, killing chickens is is certainly of that same category. It's like that old Sesame Street thing, right? Where one of these things is not like the other, right? A housing or an eviction moratorium is not like the other things that are listed. It's also something that when we look at, 
doesn't appear to be something that's primarily motivated by controlling the interstate spread of disease. And and I think we all know that, right? It, it's motivated by a very legitimate, understandable, compassionate impulse, right? That that people uh, at risk of eviction are likely among the most vulnerable people in our society. And in a world in which there is a pandemic and there is tremendous economic dislocation caused by both the pandemic and government responses to the pandemic, those people are even more vulnerable. And one of the things they're vulnerable to is a loss of housing. Gosh, we should do something about that, right? I, I understand all that, but that's not disease control, right? That's helping people in need. And I think it's clear to most of us that that's really what's driving this policy. And it's been clear to most of the courts that have looked at this and say, if, if Congress wants to do that, the answer is not to go on TV and complain about the president, is not to tell Joe Biden to get better lawyers. It's to pass legislation that would help those people that are vulnerable to this sort of dislocation. And Congress clearly could do that. They might have to, they might have to uh, compensate landowners. They might, or they might have to do other things to effectuate it. But Congress could certainly help people at risk of eviction if it wanted to. Um, and they've chosen to not even try. Right. I mean, which I think is sort of indicative of one of the things I talk about a lot on here, which is that the real problem is Congress doesn't want to do its job. It wants to shove things elsewhere and then complain that they're not happening because that way they get to have people on both sides of the issue. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but someone in the nation wrote this piece about what Biden did. We shouldn't call it lawless or unconstitutional. We should call it a brave act of presidential civil disobedience. <laughs> If that's that's so. I mean, at the risk of being a bit eggheady, uh -huh. um, <laughs> I think that should be sailed. But go on. <laughs> there is a way that Biden could have done what he did with the renewed moratorium that I would actually defend as good faith execution of his obligations to take care that that the laws are faithfully executed. I think his public statements and the other statements of the White House make it hard to defend the good faith of the actions. But there is an argument, and 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 it, and, and I'm happy to give the super short version or the longer version. The super short version is each branch has an obligation to consider the lawfulness and constitutionality of its own actions independently, right? So the executive branch isn't supposed to sit around waiting for the courts to make up their mind. The executive branch is supposed to think, well, what power did Congress give us? What do the statutes say? What does the constitution allow us to do? That's why we have an office of legal counsel in the justice department. And it is okay for the branches to sometimes say, yeah, we know you might not agree with us, but you're wrong, and we are going to force the issue. Uh, Lincoln did that. Lincoln defended that mo you know, very uh, uh, powerfully and, and persuasively. Uh, so we can imagine a world in which President Biden said, I've seen what the courts have said. I see what the very strong indications are from the Supreme Court. I think they're wrong. We are going to issue a narrower, more targeted moratorium that we think um, the Supreme Court might be willing to uphold, but we're doing it because this is our reading of the law and we feel an obligation to follow that. And if the courts disagree with us, well, then we'll try something else. That's not what they said. Um, uh, and, and that's my biggest problem with uh, you know, apart from disagreeing with their legal interpretation, that's my biggest problem with the way this has this has uh, played out, right? Because it's it's instead been, well, 
this is illegal, but we'll get away with it for long enough to shovel a lot of money out the door. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like we can do it until we get caught. That's bad faith, right? We think we're right and we're going to force the courts to confront this. That's good faith, but that's not not what we're seeing from the administration. Yeah, but all right, so is, I mean, I, I, I'm with you on this. I mean, this is one of my, I mean, I have up, I, upstairs in the living room, I was just rereading an old AI Robert Lick book, Is the Supreme Court the Guardian of Our Constitutional Rights? And it's a great book. And I, I'm, 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 I'm of the school that everybody, every constitutional elected, every constitutional officer of the federal government who takes an oath to uphold the Constitution is equally obliged to question whether or not their actions or what they're being asked to do is constitutional or not. And they're not. And the problem, it seems to me, is that. So, like, yeah, if the White House says, no, look, we're right, they're wrong. And we're going to argue it out. That's fine. And we're going to act on our interpretation until told otherwise. I, I'm hard pressed to figure out what the interpretation would be that I would say is right on the merits. I would suspect that you would have a hard time finding it too. Can you read that law? Well, okay. I, I, I can, I can interpret it in ways that people that do not share my priors about the nature of our governmental system and the nature of congressional power and the nature of agency power. Um, you know, there, there, of which there are lots in the academy. Right? So I have friends in the academy, colleagues, who will offer good faith arguments that if the court interpreted the law the way they think it should, right, It'd would allow would allow this, right? Okay. Um, now, it's and as a lawyer, that, you could do that if your client required it, <laughs> right? And 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 there 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 are probably three votes for that view on the Supreme Court, right? Right. Um, right. Um, and maybe maybe four, um, but but probably at least three. And, um, right, that argument would include, well, you know, the, the power is broad. If you do not think that there's any limit on the extent to which Congress can delegate power to agencies, it, there's no problem with reading the laws, giving a blank check uh, to the CDC. Um, there is also the view that, that um, insofar as there may be a connection between evictions and the interstate spread of COVID, that's just not a judgment that courts are empowered to make and agencies are the ones to make it, even if they make it wrong. So, or, or, or make an error. And so therefore it's just not something the courts should disturb. I mean, there are arguments. I find them unconvincing. I think they are at odds with existing doctrine, um, on the nature of agency power. Um, I think they are even more wrong under an even better understanding of how we should think about agency power, but th they are serious arguments. Um, um, and, um, I do think the administration could have put that forward. And I think they could have said, I mean, if I were in the white house, I would have said, look, the, the speech, the white, the, the president should give, or that someone should give would be this. We understand that in the rush of getting the first moratorium out, the CDC described its authority in a way that seemed a bit unbounded and a bit, you know, a bit infinitely malleable. And we understand why courts would be concerned about that. But uh, we are redoing the moratorium in a way that makes clear that the CDC understands there are meaningful limits on authority and why a moratorium focused on those parts of the country where the spread is greatest is consistent with that authority. And we believe that is consistent with the statute and 
with the ability to more fully, with the benefits of benefit of time and the ability to more fully address these concerns, we hope that the courts will understand that what the CDC is doing is necessary and lawful. Um, right, doing that way, I think, would both be more consistent with the executive branch's obligations to take seriously the underlying legal question. It also gives the courts a bit of an out, right? It's the we were a bit sloppy before. We were in a rush. You know, things were going so fast. We are now responding to the concerns that you see in uh, Judge Friedrich's opinion or Judge Calabrese's opinion or the, the Sixth Circuit opinion. And we are addressing that so that you, the courts, can now can uphold this without looking like you've backed down. Um, and but again, but no one it. asked me. They didn't ask yeah. me. And they didn't do that. But <laughs> okay. but uh, instead, they kind of said, well, we think we can kind of get away with this because Larry Tribe wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe saying we can do it. And um, so okay. here we are. And so, yeah. so, but, so, I mean, but isn't this in sort of emblematic of, I don't, I, I don't want to sound too grandiose here, but a problem of the regime at this point in the, insofar as you had George W. Bush say that he thought big chunks of the McCain-Feingold camp, uh, campaign finance reform were unconstitutional, but he would let the courts sort it out. Barack Obama literally said he couldn't do DACA like 22 times and said what people were asking him to do was impossible because he's not an emperor or a king, and then he did it. And, and then you have this Biden stuff. And it was funny because I, I was writing the column. I went back and I looked at the Washington Post fact check about, about what Obama did. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, there are a lot of people like to beat up on Glenn Kessler. I, I'm not one of them, but I just, I just think it was kind of interesting how he just proved his case that Obama was a flip-flopper without touching the fact like it's one thing to be a flip-flopper and say you know um i used to be against ethanol now i'm for ethanol right that doesn't touch constitutional issues i'm sure you could find a way they do but in general they just really don't touch him right but to say look i'm not a essentially i'm not a dictator i'm not an emperor i'm not a king i can't do that and then he does what he said would be indicative of being an emperor or dictator or king and the only thing you're upset about is the flip-flopping <laughs> is weird. And so we have this problem where the Supreme Court, I understand there's a debate about you know, judicial review and yada, yada, yada. But like, if you swear to uphold the Constitution, that should not let you then say, so I'll pass this trash to the Supreme Court. And if I can get it over the plate, great. And if, 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 if there's bad stuff in it, they'll catch it. And if they overturn the good stuff, I then get to say, oh, the Supreme Court sucks. They're denying you the goodies. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, and they get to take all the political heat. That is a structural problem with the regime at this point. And it has to do how with people don't care about the Constitution the way they once did. Or maybe they never did, but. And, and it's true in Congress as well. I mean, so there's this guy, David Curry. He, he's a. Uh, he was a law professor at the University of Chicago, and he wrote a series of books called The Constitution in Congress. And um, and it's just, I mean, it's just a history of debates about the constitutionality of things from the beginning. And you go back and you read, 
legislation to decide where post roads would go. And there are constitutional questions there that members of Congress cared about and debated because they felt that should control their votes. Now, I should note, um, and James Madison articulated this very well over the the fight over the bank, um, there was a, a belief that if you lost enough times or lost decisively on the constitutional question, a thoughtful, prudent statesman should take that into account. Right. So James Madison initially thought the bank was unconstitutional. He later basically said before the Supreme Court had ruled on it, he said, look, you know, I, I thought it was unconstitutional. I did not convince my colleagues repeatedly. Um, I did not convince my colleagues in Congress. I did not convince the president. At some point, I have to be humble enough to say that constitutional question has been settled and I lost. And so I do think it's reasonable to say that the executive branch should care about the fact that nine really smart people sitting at one first street think about these questions and reach a conclusion that the executive branch might disagree with. Um, but you still have to take that initial swing, right? You, that initial, what do we think the constitutionality of it is? It should control whether legislation is signed or vetoed. It should control whether legislation is voted on in the first place. And, and it is a systemic problem. You're absolutely right about that. Um, and it, it's, at times, it's even worse than that. I think you see hints of this in Biden's statement, right? His, his Kinsley-esque gaffe, right? Because he, he gave the story. We're doing this because we think we can get away with it for enough time to help some people, right? Which is the, the, the cynical part of it, the, the, the treating it as a game. Uh, we saw this some in the Obama administration. We, we saw it some in the Trump administration. We see it in this interesting... Um, there's this abortion law in Texas where you see this, this kind of, well, can we do it in a way that just makes it really hard for the courts to call us on it? And then we get away with it. Um, some of the Obamacare implementation stuff was like that, right? Before even looking at, can we do this legally? It was, well, is anyone going to be able to sue us? Well, no, well, then, then do it. Um, and that's, that's corrosive. That's a big problem. And, and I would love to say it's all the other team's fault, but... Um, I'm not sure I can say that. No, I mean, look, I mean, just more broadly, I am hard pressed to think of a good faith argument about whether something was, or I shouldn't say good faith. I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of a recent fight over the constitutionality of something that penetrated the public discourse that really wasn't just a stalking horse for a partisan fight, right? Where you had people who, didn't who disagreed with the policy? Let's put it this way: who agreed with the policy, but objected to it on constitutional grounds, or disagreed with the policy but thought it was fine on constitutional grounds. Basically, constitutional arguments now, f as a general rule, are just simply the nearest weapon to hand for a partisan argument or a policy argument, and no one really cares whether something is constitutional or unconstitutional anymore, except for maybe on some grand scale, you know, shutting down a newspaper might trigger some people. Right. No, I, I think, I think, I think that's true. I mean, I think there are exceptions, but those folks who are, and I certainly try to be one and, and, um, you know, people who read my stuff can, can judge whether or not I, I meet that standard. There are some folks out there. I mean, there are some folks on the left that I think have been pretty good about calling out their own side about, um, making legal arguments that just 
even from a different set of premises, just don't work. Right. Um, Section two thirty um, Twitter is is particularly ripe with that opportunity. Yeah, I mean there are there are there are interesting substantive questions about how to understand the scope of Section two thirty when it was first adopted because it was about controlling smut, not about this other stuff. Um, but yeah, that's not the Twitter debate that we get um, about about two thirty. Um, yeah, it's it's a problem. Um, I mean, we should recognize that there are things we might like to do that are constitutionally difficult. Um, and, um, there are things that we don't want the government to do that are perfectly constitutionally permissible. All right. So, uh, let's move on. We will circle back to some of the constitutional stuff in a bit, but, um, you are by trade and by vocation and sort of primarily environmental lawyer, right? I mean, that's one of your focus focuses. It is. I, 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 I run an environmental center. I've been doing environmental stuff now for 30 some years. So yeah, it's. Uh... Um, and I mean, I just know, cause you have a lot of things in your portfolio. There's also comic books and, and fusionism and whatnot. But um, when I first met you before you became a lawyer, you know, you were a CEI environmental guy working with Fred Smith and our mutual friend, Ron Bailey and yada, yada, yada. Um, so the latest IPCC report is out, and um, uh, I have thoughts, but I'm more curious about your thoughts about it. And also, just generally, where do you come down on climate change in general, right, these days? Yeah, so um, climate change is a problem. It's, it's a really big, wicked risk problem. And, and my, my biggest concern with the way we often talk about climate change is we we obscure, we gloss over the fact that it's it's a risk problem and like any risk problem it's not that there's a certainty it's that there there is a range of possible outcomes some of which are pretty bad and whether we're talking about financial risk or you're talking about like the risk to your home or whatever else right we we generally recognize that it is prudent to take actions to mitigate and uh, adapt to risks. And um, sometimes um, that requires collective action, right? National defense is in part, right? Why, why did we have a nuclear arsenal? Why did we do the things we did during the Cold War? Well, because there was a small but serious probability that the Soviet Union could do something really awful. And we had to protect against that really bad possibility. And climate change to me is kind of similar, right? That um, the likelihood of some really bad things happening is large enough and those consequences are great enough that the best re policy response is not to do nothing. It's rather to do those things that prudently either reduce the risk of the really bad things or reduce the consequences of the really bad things, right? So can we reduce the likelihood that the climate um, uh warms sufficiently to do bad things or can we do things that make the warming less of a big deal and that's hard um it's particularly hard if you tend to be skeptical of the efficacy of government uh, regulation and, and government initiative and if you on normative grounds aren't thrilled with the idea of expanding government um but you know that 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 to me is where that's the framework in which I'm looking at this. This is a big risk problem and it requires some degree of collective action. And so the question is what sorts of interventions 
can be prudently justified given what we know. And we know a lot, but we don't know, you know, on this date in 2050, the sea level will be X and we will have this number of hurricanes and here's where they will be. Um, We know that in 2050, if things go the way they are, the likelihood of bad things happening in certain parts of the world is greater than it is today. And that's bad. Um, And so when you say there are things that we could do to reduce risk, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. There's a lot of right tail risks that, and it bothers me a great deal. That, and I think there's some of this in the report where they actually don't talk about, I was, watch, I was going through some of the stuff that Roger Pilke was talking about, about how they don't assign probabilities to some of their worst case scenarios. They just say that, these are some of the terrible things that could happen. And there's just a difference in terms of public policy between something that's a 1% chance and a 10% chance, never mind a 50% chance, right? And, um, uh, but regardless, when you say there are things that we can do, are you talking about uh, mitigation of the effects? Are you talking about, like in terms of, you know, shore restoration or whatever? Are you talking about reducing uh greenhouse gas emissions, or are you talking about the stuff I like to talk about, which is super awesome geoengineering and uh, fixing the problem rather than just, uh, you know, reduce, you know, alleviating some of the symptoms? Yeah, I, I will, I will, I will start off by saying geoengineering might be necessary and it might be possible. It does kind of scare me a bit. I will just, oh, I mean, it scares me too. I, I'd I mean, want to study it for another uh, 20 years or um, something, but yeah. And, 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 um, although, you know, geoengineering, um, there's a strong argument that geoengineering is not illegal under international law at the moment. So the possibility that China at some point just decides, hey, we've got a lot of coal, so we're going to spray a lot of sulfates into the, into the atmosphere to, to, block, uh, to, to block the sun to, to cool the planet. You know, there is a non-zero possibility of that, and that kind of scares me. Um, but you know, so I, I think it's a mix, right? So um, our goal should be, can we reduce the carbon in the atmosphere or the greenhouse forcing in the atmosphere at a acceptable cost to, you know, both economic cost, cost to liberty and so on. Uh, because there are, there are fat tail risks on both sides, right? There's, there's a fat tail risk of the climate changing enough that we get a, a really awful positive feedback loop and things spin out of control. And, you know, suddenly you have to, uh, go on cross country skis from New York to Washington while you're fighting wolves in the museum, like in that awful movie. Um, or, uh, and there's also a fat tail risk on the other side, right? That we we let government control all energy use and it suffocates the engine of growth uh, and the engines of technological development, which means the millions of people around the world who are stuck in poverty remain there. Um, those are both risks we should care about. Um, so I think we need to think about both of those. What, what I would do is I would say, look, um, we have seen incredible environmental transformations. Um, the one that, that I'm just constantly amazed by right now is, is the dematerialization that's occurring in uh, modern societies. And it's not just that, you know, the aluminum can today is thinner and easier to rip in half than it was when you and I were kids. It's that literally we are using fewer molecules of stuff, fewer mm-hmm. molecules. As we get richer. Yeah. As we get richer, not molecules per output. We're using actually less stuff. Jesse Ausubel at Rockefeller University has done this work on it. It, it is mind blowing. Um, the example I use to kind of so people can comprehend this: if you think about communication, 
right? We used to do it through copper, right? And that's an incredibly environmentally destructive mining process, smelting process that's incredibly polluting. It's incredibly energy intensive and it's using lots of material. And, you know, when you and I were growing up, that's how we communicated. We had a landline and it went to a copper wire and, and then someone figures out that, wait, I can use sand, right? Silica to make fiber optics. And one of these little fiber optic cables can actually carry more information than this fat copper wire. And it's less energy intensive. It uses less material. It's less, has less environmental impact. And now we don't even use that, right? We use, we use wavelength. We use Wi-Fi. That, in a nutshell, is dematerialization, right? That we are, we are, we are, we are getting more and using absolute less stuff. If we could figure out how to do that with energy, that solves our climate problem. Um, we don't know how to do that, right? Uh, we actually don't know how to have a zero carbon modern society yet, uh, not one that's wealthy and free and dynamic. Um, but it might be possible. And so I think there are policies we could do that would accelerate technological development and increase the likelihood that we get that sort of dematerialization in energy, right? More than switching from coal to gas. But I mean, the big leaps um, in battery storage, in uh, perhaps even nuclear power design, um, but other, other things. Um, so I think there are policies we can do there. I think there are policies, and, and those are both policies to increase the incentive to do that right? Increase the incentive to figure out how to replace fossil fuels with uh, other forms of energy, um, but also ways to clear the barriers out of the way, right? Um, uh, it, 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 Cape Wind, 20 years ago, or 15 years ago, 18 years ago, I wrote a piece for NR about, you know, Cape Wind, it's been, it's been having trouble, um, but it may finally start get built. Um, and it never got built because we have a regulatory process that just ground it to bits. Um, we are only now, 20 years later, starting to see offshore wind in the United States. That's, that's nuts. Uh, if you want these transitions, you want to make it easier for the guy with the good idea to go out and build it and try it out. Uh, and then, you know, I, I am an advocate of pricing carbon, um, not because I believe the government's going to come up with the perfect Peguvian number, uh, but because I think that uh, when we burn fuels we are using the atmosphere that is as a as a disposal site it is a collectively owned disposal site we don't know how to carve it up into, into individualized um uh units uh and um it's better to have a price on the use of that than not and i would do it the way british columbia did it where that money is recycled back um on a per capita basis um, so we're not giving the government more money. We are merely shifting, effectively shifting tax incidents away from working and wealth creation and onto consumption and emitting stuff. Uh, and when I first came to DC, most conservatives said, oh, you should tax consumption, not wealth creation, not income, not working. Yeah, I'm like, exactly. A carbon tax is kind of like that. Um, so I would do those things. And I think those things would maximize the likelihood that we can accelerate the transition to a lower carbon, if not zero carbon world, um, and would do so in a way without hamstringing technological development and economic growth. Um, and um, that's what I would do. 
Um, so I'm I'm, but, I'm curious about you know I mean you 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 sort of checked the box and said the word nuclear, but it really didn't seem to be a big part of your thing. And I I honestly don't understand one of my tells about whether or not somebody actually means what they're saying in good faith about how climate change is an existential threat, right, or an extinction level threat, is whether or not they're willing to contemplate using nuclear power because it's the only thing that, it, as far as I'm aware, that at scale can, and with reliability, produce the kind of megawattage that you need if you want to replace coal and, and, and natural gas for electricity, you know, electric, electricity generation. Um, and yet to listen to, you know, Bernie Sanders on down, you know, it's just a non-starter. And I, what is the good, I mean, what is, first of all, what's your view on nuclear? And second of all, since you have these arguments all the time, you're on these panels all the time, all these sort of thumb suckers about this stuff. What is the good faith ob objection to really investing heavily in nuclear? Is it just the waste issue? I mean, what, what, what is the, what is the, if you really believe the, the, the dire predictions about this stuff, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to pursue nuclear. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there, there are kind of good faith arguments against nuclear and there are kind of quasi religious, almost superstitious arguments against nuclear, uh, right? N nuclear power for what is associated culturally with nuclear weapons and, and to a lot of people, um, in Godzilla. ways that you got it. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. but, but you know, like if nuclear power gave us more Kaiju, uh, I, I might be okay with that. Um, but, um, um, you have a lot more broken windows, you know, which you know, would generate right, a lot more jobs. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, uh, so, I mean, so there, there's always been that. I mean, I, when I worked in, in back at CEI, we did work with trying to work with environmental groups on identifying government programs that subsidized environmental harm. And there are lots of energy subsidies there. And there were some um, programs that address that dealt with nuclear power where it's not clear what the environmental harm was or it wasn't even clear what the cost of the taxpayer was. But some of the environmental groups insisted on them being on the list because it was related to nuclear. And they would say, well, you know, if you have more nuclear power, well, then you'll have more processing of nuclear fuels. And you'll, if you have more processing, then maybe you have more, in, you know, stuff that you can be used for weapons. And, and it's like, maybe, but that, that's not a, that's not an environmental argument. I mean, that's a, um, it's, that's it's, a, that, it's an, it's icky argument, right? Pretty much. And, and so there is, there is a bit of that, um, you know, when you really dig into nuclear, in the United States at least, it has never been as cheap as it was supposed to be. Um, and um, part of that has been a function of regulation. Part of that has been a function of liability concerns. Um, um, but that's that's something that makes nuclear power, I think, a little more complicated. Um, I think also, if you actually look at what we think we know about uranium reserves, it's not clear nuclear could power the world, um, um, but it clearly could do a lot. And it clearly could do a lot in the near to medium, really in the medium term, right? If our concern is what, the, what, what our emission profile looks like over the next 40 years, uh, assuming that it's going to take some time to get better battery storage, which could make wind and solar more viable as, as baseload power, power or carbon capture that's economical so that we could actually use fossil fuels and then capture the carbon 
Um, that's going to take a while to come online, and and we could do nuclear in the medium term. Um, and I agree with you. If someone's not willing to put that on the table, how is climate change an, exis- an existential threat? If someone's not willing to say we should accelerate the environmental review for offshore wind and be willing to sacrifice a few birds, and I like birds, I like birds, but a lot. Um, but but you know, if if it's an existential threat. We might need to say, you know, we, we are going to reduce some bird populations. We might need to say to to the recreational boaters and to the fishermen, you know, you might have to change where you sail a little bit because we need to put some wind farms up in Lake Erie or off the coast of Massachusetts or what have you. Um, if it's an existential threat, you make those trade-offs. And I agree with you, there are people who either don't believe it's an existential threat or believe that reducing economic dynamism, reducing growth are affirmatively good things. And as you well know um, from reading stuff that folks like Ron Bailey has written, there is a strain of that in American environmentalism, which is very deep. This idea that that uh, environmental impact is a function of, uh, is, uh, is a product of population times affluence times, techno- times technology. And anything that allows more people and more wealth and more technological advance is bad for the planet. I think that's affirmatively wrong. The dematerialization story we were just talking about is proof that that is wrong, or at least it's not an inexorable rule. It depends on what we do with the affluence. It depends on what types of technology we have. Um, but that's really hard. That's a, that's a really that's that's kind of built into a lot of contemporary environmental ideology in ways that's really hard to get over. And nuclear power hits that, right? Because it's a technology that if used poorly could do bad stuff. And yes, it, it could. Um, but my view, you know, if we can put a bunch of sailors on a submarine with a nuclear reactor and let them go underwater and think they're not going to die, we should be able to use nuclear power to power cities, to power factories, um, uh, at least until... Bill Gates figures out how to make the that laser thing he's doing, um, right? The concentrated solar power thing he's trying uh, uh, work. Yeah. Also, I th- I think you know, giant nuclear power plants on the moon make a lot of sense once you can figure out the the connectivity. I mean, the the extension cord problem is a is real, but well, in um, SimCity, right? They had in SimCity they had you could build those. At least the SimCity that I used to play, you know, twenty years ago. The, the, this this like laser. Uh, a way of generating power from from power plants on the moon. The problem was occasionally in SimCity, the laser would miss and right. it would like hit your city, um, and fry it. Right, right, yeah, and that's that's bad. But um, but you know, look, so the you know the world. You know, Aaron Moldavsky always used to say that right, the world is made safer by dangerous things, and that is true environmentally. Right, we were talking about telecommunications. Right, in my, in my phone. There are all kinds of really special metals and heavy, you know, and things, precious metals from around the world that are hard to get. They are hard to get cleanly. And we ultimately will want to deal with that. But it's better than massive amounts of copper mining. So nuclear power isn't perfect. But having nuclear power, especially um, uh, uh, if the alternative is coal, is an improvement. And our children and our grandchildren will, I believe, see improvements from nuclear, uh, whether it's or improvements from current contemporary nuclear, either safer nuclear or 
the concentrated solar thing that that Bill Gates is is is, is investing in, or um, something involving really cool carbon capture, or you know, our moon based whatever. I mean, there will be better technologies. They won't be perfect either. They will create new risks. But the world is made safer by dangerous things, and and um, unfortunately, in environment, you know, you know, the right side of environmental debates has a problem of wanting to deny that problems exist. The left side has a problem with often acknowledging that the world is made safer and cleaner by dangerous and dirty things. And that makes it hard to have sensible environmental solutions. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, like, I mean, obviously I think you're right about the environmental um, movements, sort of the, the strain of Malthusian Luddism, all that kind of stuff is real. And, um, this assumption that in a state of nature, everything is pristine and wonderful is, is, is definitely deep in there. Um, I and do it's, think, it's crazy, right? It, but of course I mean, it like, it, I mean, you know, if, when we go back, if we go back to like, you know, burning dung for heat and cooking, right. That is not cleaner. That is not safer. That is not healthier. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, replacing horses with the internal combustion engine was an incredible environmental advance. Even though we spent much of the, the, the later 20th century figuring out how to deal with the environmental problems caused by the industrial in, internal combustion engine, and we still are, it was an incredibly positive thing to replace horses. It was good for uh, uh, controlling disease and water pollution. It was good for wildlife and nature. I mean, every wilderness area east of the Mississippi has previously been farmed post-European settlement, right? And what was a lot of that land used for? Food for horses. Right? When we placed horses with cars, we were able to say a lot of that land can go back to nature. That's great. We don't have as much manure to worry about getting into our water supplies. That's great. Okay, we have more air pollution. Okay, but we then over time learn how to address that. And, and um, you know, understanding that dynamic, understanding you can't plan it, right? There wasn't some guy saying, well, we should replace horses with an, with an internal combustion engine, right? Understanding that innovation occurs because lots of people are trying to solve problems and make money off solving those problems. Um, and that we want a system that encourages and allows that is, you know, it's, 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 it's a view of, of technological development that, that is, Certainly not present on the left, not present among the industrial policy folks on the right, but but it's the way we get better stuff. And and the environmental movement historically has been um, somewhat hostile to that. I you know, I think that's you know there are folks like at Breakthrough and and so on that that are challenging that. Um, and I think that's good um, because we need a more optimistic uh, environmentalism, uh, an environmentalism that says yes, we have problems, but we can solve them. And technology and dynamism are part of how we do that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll, we'll get there, but it may take a while. Yeah, I mean, that reforestation stuff, it also do that we replaced wood with oil and gas for heating, right? And we replaced wood with concrete and other materials for construction. And 
And I mean, we, I, we replaced whale oil too. I mean, don't forget, right? I mean, you know, and I, I have a soft spot for whales, right? They're they're big, they're big mammals that that at least according to one Star Trek movie saved the world. Uh, and, charismatic uh, megafauna. They are they are charismatic megafauna, and um, um, it's good that we don't slaughter them for uh, lighting uh, and and other things. Um, and um, so yeah, and and fossil fuels helps with that, right? Fossil fuels help save whales. That's a good thing. Um, something else will ultimately, I think, replace, either replace fossil fuels or will, um, in effect, um, control their negative effects. I mean, there are folks who believe that we will not only be able to do carbon capture at the source of power plants, but, um, there are folks that believe we will actually eventually be able to have, um, giant carbon capture machines that literally are just out there, you know, blimps that are sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and maybe so. Uh, and if so, great. And then we can still burn the coal and what have you. Um, but, um, we need a system that encourages that, that rewards that, that doesn't strangle it with regulation that doesn't expect some bureaucrat somewhere to plan how we get it in five year increments. Uh, that's not how that stuff works. Yeah. So it's funny. And this is a good point of segue. Um, uh, just yesterday I was doing Brett Bear's podcast for Fox and I was on with, um, Harold Ford, supremely nice guy. And, um, but deeply persuaded by large swaths of the sort of center left conventional wisdom about a great many things. And, um, and he was talking about our competition with China requires us to invest in, industry and infrastructure and all of these kinds of things and yada, yada, yada. And I pushed back on it and he sort of started asking me questions about, you know, he was like, can I, can I talk to Jonah about this? Cause I, you know, and, and so we got into a little thing about it and he says, I assume you thought it was worth investing in the in military and infrastructure to, to win the cold war. Well, that's what we now have a cold war with China and it's not economic. It's not military it's economic. And I was like, yeah, okay, maybe we do. Maybe we don't. I don't know what cold war means if it's purely economic. Um, but if, if you're right, I'm someone who actually believes that the way we win an economic competition to the extent that there is competition between nations, I actually subscribe to the Paul Krugman circa 1994 on all this stuff, um, <laughs> is, is not by implementing industrial policy, right? It's, it's not by picking winners and losers. It's by letting the markets flourish and getting out of their way. And that's how we'll get richer and we'll beat them at this competition that you're so concerned about. And I find that I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and I think and say in broad brushstrokes, I suspect you basically agree with me on that. And um, I also don't think it's useful thinking about it in terms economically, in terms of a competition. That is to say, a wealthier China helps make us wealthier. Right. No, right? I agree. Uh, I agree. Figuring out how to unlock all the the untapped uh, potential of the human capital in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa in particular um, would be incredible for us. It would also be incredible for them, right? For people in parts of the world that 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 have not uh, had the benefits of industrialization and 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 modern technology and economic growth. Right. I mean, um, if China if China had an economic implosion tomorrow, just a complete 50, 75 point drop in GDP. That would make us infinitely more competitive with China, according to some metric of outputs, 
it would also make us a lot poorer because the contagion from that would bring us down at least, I don't know, 20 points of GDP. And so I agree with you. But my point, what I want to get to is that, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're one of the last guys around that of at least of our generation that I think qualifies as an old school fusionist, sort of a right of center as it used to be defined libertarian. Um, what the old right types used to call um, individualist, right? Rather than than paleo libertarian or any of that garbage. Um, and we're not exactly like the Jedi wiped out at the end of the Clone War movie, but it, it's it's it, we're fewer and fewer of us, right? Yes. And um, and so I, I sort of it used to be that you talk to almost any random gathering of people on the center right and you plucked out some of the points that you were offering there about how industrial policy is bad or how picking winners and losers is bad about how you know uh you know that regulations are a problem blah, blah, and it would just be nodding heads that's not really the case anymore and so i'm wondering where do you like just what what is your take on where the the right is in general, but also particularly your your tribe of the sort of libertoid, you know, center right, reasonable, policy driven libertarian types. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I'm not. And I I heard uh, when when you had uh, Tim Carney on, and I'm I'm not as uh, by nature I'm not as inherently optimistic as as Tim is. Um, I, I'm concerned. You know, I think I, I, I don't want to be that grumpy old man. Um, that talks about how the kids these days, you know, don't know history and don't read books and so on. Right. Um, but it's true. But, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> kids these days. And, and I, I do think that's part of it. Right. So, I mean, when I was in college and, um, uh, I stumbled across, you know, I started reading things and I was in a, I was in a, a conservative debating society at Yale and, and, um, uh, would stumble across, you know, Hayek or when I first, I remember when I first read Frank Meyer, I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I would go and read more. And then I would want to read like the debates. Oh, wait, there were other people that are kind of in this group that I'm of, of intellectuals that I'm discovering who disagreed with them. And, you know, then I found the George Nash history and, you know, and I, and, and, um, you know, my, my, my family would say, well, that, that was because I'm a dork and I like, you know, running down, di diving into these rabbit holes and, and, and soaking up this sort of thing. But I no, do We think... talked about this before in, in the context, because we both used to be comic book geeks. It's like, we both loved origin stories, right? Yes. And like the Nash yes. book is just like the origin stories of all these superheroes, you know? Yes, anyway, exactly. Like, and, yeah. but, but, um, you know, I, but I do think that, that among kind of people that aspired to be right of center thought leaders, there was a sense that we were the ones that really understood history and really understood out the history of our ideas and intellectual history in a way that, you know, we, we certainly felt that, that our, that our contemporaries on the left did not, at least that was certainly my experience that, that there was a sense of, you know, how much the debates over industrial policy, the debates over other things were, were a rehash of debates that occurred before, right? That when, when the Hayek Longa debates over market socialism, you know, occurred and Hayek won and we understood that and we could talk about that debate and we could talk about what we actually did and didn't learn from the New Deal and so on. And we could understand why we believe the things we believed. And I do think that, 
that, um, you know, as society has moved away from books and away from blogs and, you know, I guess we're even moving away from Twitter to, you know, TikToks. Um, I do think it is harder to transmit ideas um, with depth. And, you know, I think that um, the Charlie Kirks of the world, you know, focus on the memes and owning the libs with the clever response, but not mooring it to these underlying transcendent ideas that we think are important. And that worries me. Um, you know, I do think, um, because when you have the debates about industrial policy, it's hard to say, well, what, what, what do we know about history about this debate? Why, why is it that government isn't good at picking winners and losers? Why is it that really smart people who thought really deeply about these questions rejected these ideas? Why is it that, you know, in, in, um, I was part of this forum on uh, that Liberty Fund put on about Frank Meyer responding to a, a piece that Stephanie Slade did um, on Meyer. And, and Henry Olson took the anti-Meyer position about, you know, we need to recognize that, that, that all this bad stuff's happening in the culture and so on. And, and my response is, okay, let's assume all the negative things are happening. Who's, you know, I don't want to spend my day looking at what the curriculum is of my kids at their school. I want to pick a good school and trust that they're going to be well-educated. I don't want to spend my day worrying about how other people's kids are educated, worrying about how other people's kids... You know, there are a lot of folks on the left that are happy to spend their days doing that. right? I would rather spend my day with my family, on my vocations, and so on. Um, as Oscar Wilde is said to have said, the problem with socialism is it takes too many of one's afternoons. I don't know if he actually said that, but he should have, or somebody should have. Um, there is a lot of historical understanding about why these kind of state-centered approaches to things don't work, why things work at the community level, but don't work at the state level and don't work at the national level. And I worry a lot that our side has lost that knowledge. And part of being a conservative to me is having those ties to our history and recognizing that traditions Traditions are the cultural equivalent of prices uh, in a Hayekian sense, right? This is the price communicates all this information about the resources necessary to produce something and get it to market. A tradition embodies all sorts of cultural knowledge because traditions only survive if they're serving a function. And, and being part of being a conservative is recognizing that and understanding that. And, and so many contemporary debates, there are so many conservatives that think we don't need to think about those things. We just need to recognize we're at war with the left, with China, with, you know, AOC, whomever, and we have to win and we have to use every weapon at our disposal. And, you know, doing that without any sense of history, it's not going to work, right? It's going to fail, um, right? We're going to create the committees to review curriculum at every school, under every school in the country. And guess what? It's not going to be our guys who are going to take off work or take away the time from their kids to staff those committees. Um, and if we centralize that control, guess what? It still won't be our guys. Um, so, you know, I just, I, I worry that the movement is so now focused that it, it, it 
is detached from all this knowledge and understanding that should inform our our debates and should inform our policy discussions. And that was a long rambling rant. And I apologize. No, no, no. It's helpful because look, I mean, I feel seen. <laughs> and uh, um, we were talking before we went live, uh, or we were, sorry, recording. Um, I, I made some joke about Hungary, and you said, "Well, I haven't followed Hungary. We don't need to talk about that. I don't need to talk about the details of Hungary, but like the, you know, the whether it's the Hungary fixation or um, a lot of this Adrian Vermeule uh, post-liberal integralist stuff, um, like." Unless you know that a lot of these arguments happened in the late sixties and early seventies between Bozell Senior and 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 Meyer about Triumph Magazine and and and, and the sort of rule of theo, theo, theocrats and all that kind of stuff, that these were like knockdown drag out fights fifty freaking years ago, and it's fine if you know that, and then you want to say, yeah, but my side shouldn't have lost that fight. I can, I can have a conversation with you, but whether it's industrial policy or this, now this thing with, with, with Hungary, my take on it is just like, it's just an unbelievable waste of time because at the end of the day, the idea that you're going to take a landlocked country of 10 million people with no tradition of democracy. Um, and even if all of the things that the left says about Victor Orban are not true. I still don't give a rat's ass about Hungary because you're you're not going to convince 330 million Americans that this should be our north star any more than the left could convince 330 million Americans that Cuba should be our north star. And um it's just a waste of time, but it's 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 and to me it's very much about it's 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 very much a power thing. It's if I can find the right metaphor for why my side should be in charge i don't have to have the arguments and so like bernie sanders says look it worked in denmark that's why we should do that and um it first of all it didn't work in denmark but second of all um uh you know as as our friend kevin williamson likes to point out you know denmark is in fact in many ways more free market than the united states is um depends on the issue but anyway you know you get the point is that it's just it's it's so much flannel mouthing and then like if you don't know about the debates about japan's midi stuff you know or you know going back or, or, or even now like the new deal like the, the nationalist types are now trying to talk about the new deal as if it was like some raving success um which is let's put it be fair is debatable and um, <laughs> um uh, yeah i mean the, yeah. <laughs> um debatable is being generous i mean you know there aren't there aren't um Look, there aren't many folks that think the New Deal was a success other than some folks that believe it was a way to lessen the depression, um, but that you wouldn't want to do it otherwise. Um, also, but I, don't even think that's, I, I think that argument is wrong. I think that. Oh, the, I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong, too. But I mean, you know, there aren't there aren't many economists, for example, that think that cartelizing the economy at every level is in general a good thing to do. Right. And that was what the New Deal was about. You know, the worst aspects of it in the NRA were were invalidated. But that's what the the Agricultural Adjustment Act is about. That's what all I mean, the, the various price supports were all about. They were essentially about cartelizing the economy. And there are many economists that think that makes sense. The people, I think, conflate the the economic aspects of the New Deal with the growth of redistribution in the New Deal, which certainly lots of people would defend. 
Um, just like a lot of people defend the great society, those aspects of the great society, the, the, the redistributionist aspect of it. Um, but the, the fundamental economic aspects of the New Deal, there are, there are very few people that have looked at it that are going to defend it straight up. Because we know that that's just, that's kind of, it's, it's battled so many levels. Uh, and it's regressive, right? Um, uh, uh, fixing prices for commodities and products is, is not good. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, the idea that the right would think that's good. But, but, but I, I, since we're on the new deal and I, it's so rare I get to do this, um, I think the only good faith, I disagree with it, but I, I'm less confident in my disagreement on this point than the other ones is that I, it was where I thought you were going to go is that there are people who argue in good faith and in all seriousness that doing the new deal was necessary to prevent a far more radical, um, you know, re basically revolutionary political movement from taking hold the way it had and through in lots of Europe. I'm, I'm not convinced that that's true, but I think you could think that that's true in good faith and have lots of evidence on your side. Um, but yeah, I guess, I, I mean, in the popular discussions, I think a lot of times when people think about the new deal, they're non-economists, non-specialists, they're thinking about things like social security. They're thinking about the erection of a social safety net. And I think that presents a fundamentally different set of questions from the core economic parts of the, of the new deal, which were bonkers and awful. Um, and this is, you know, kind of like the point about Denmark, right? Is that there, there are grossly overgeneralizing, there are kind of two types of economic questions, right? One is relating to, to, to distribution. To what extent do we use the state to redistribute wealth to help those at the bottom? And Europe clearly does a lot more of that than we do. There is a second question, which to what extent should the state direct and regulate and control and constrain the economy and, and make it less dynamic so as to direct it or, or, or um, you know, sand down the rough edges. And there, countries like Denmark actually don't do as much of that as we tend to think they do and don't do as much as we do in some instances. And those are two separate questions, right? So I think, um, and, and I, think, I think it's useful to think about them separately. I actually, you know, my, the more I thought about this, I felt that, um, the conservative movement's obsession and focus on taxing and spending, including the redistribution side, um, at the expense of spending more time focusing on regulation, is a mistake. It's understandable because it's easier. How much are we taxing? How much are we spending? Um, um, but in terms of the of liberty, the ability to do what you want to do and to build something and to create a business and to invent something and to live your life the way you want to regulation, right? Telling other people what to do with their own stuff is a greater threat and should be focused on more. I also think ultimately in terms of economic growth is actually a bigger deal. Um, um, so, you know, that's, but, but it, it's amazing that, that so many folks on the right, as we were talking about, don't not only don't see that, but but think that the economic control aspects of the New Deal or of Japan's industrial policy or whatever else are things that we're just discovering and and can be made shiny and new and effective. And we we know better.
um, uh, the best things we have in this country were not produced that way. Uh, the dematerialization we talked about before, it was not produced because someone said, oh, wait, we should have a program to replace copper with sand. No, somebody came up with this crazy idea and it worked and it, it ate the lunch of its competitors and bam, right? I mean, and, um, you know, the, the kind of the intellectual grounding for understanding that those arguments, the history, the understanding of economics and so on is, is lost in our policy debates and it's lost increasingly on the right, which, which to get back to that point does worry me, right? That, that, um, uh, there is more interest in the meme, the T-shirt, uh, the, the 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 Twitter response, the the little video you can you can the viral video you can do that shows you getting the last word that you owned somebody you know you so and so destroys so and so we obsess about that and we don't obsess about okay what's the actual right answer and history and economics and and philosophy might help us know what that is. And there are a lot of smart people that thought about this stuff that we should learn from. But anyway, so um, I'm, I'm ranting grandpa again. No, no, that's fine. Uh, so the, the, you know, the, whatever label we want, you know, Trumpists, nationalists, whatever, you know, one of their core arguments is that the right never wins anything. Right. And this was one of the, one of the rationalizations for throwing in with Trump is that finally, because at least he fights. Right. And instead we always lose. And as I constantly repeat on this podcast, that analysis leaves out a couple of things. First of all, both the right and the left are both convinced that their side always loses, which tells you it's at least a more complicated story. But second, you know, there are actually a lot of wins on the right. And, uh, and one of the places that's sort of at the forefront of that is um, the conservative legal movement, and which I, I associate you with. And, um, um, and now that's being called a problem, right? Because they're, they're the, the sort of, I, I, the Vermeulian sort of point of view on this, as far as I understand it, is that we should be aimed at results rather than procedure. And, um, I think that's bat guano crazy, um, for any number of reasons. And I mean, I'm, I'm curious where you come down on all that stuff, but also more broadly, how confident are you that the conservative legal movement is going to maintain it. Steve Tellis makes this really good, interesting argument that the, one of the reasons why like the sort of federal society types survive the Trump years more or less intact is because by, by vocation, lawyers are trained to have jackass clients and they understand how to be transactional about things and focus on where they need to focus. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and the best evidence that they came out with their integrity intact was that a lot of these stop the steal BS cases were brought before Trump judges and Trump judges were just as likely as anybody else to throw them out of court. How confident are you that, that, that that's sustainable? Like, will that guild maintain its uh, integrity or will like in Dune, someone figured out how to break the seal and corrupt conser the conservative intellectual legal movement? Um, you know, I, I, I worry about it. Um, you know, I worry about it less, you know, from folks like Adrian Vermeule, who, you know, I disagree with Adrian on, on a ton of things. Um, um, but his, his understanding of his argument is far more sophisticated than most of the people that echo his arguments on Twitter. Um, I would hope so. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. And, 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 um, you know, I think, you know, as I, you know, I've reviewed a bunch of his books and, 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 I, and I've known him for a long time and, and, you know, I think some of his books are important challenges to people like me, right. That have to be met. Um, um, so, but I think ultimately it's wrong, right. That, 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 you know, victor, what is victory? Victory is not, um, the balloon drop on election day. Victory is being able to live your life, to raise your family, to pursue your vocation in accord with your values, uh, you know, you know, to, to pursue your telos in a community of, of folks that, that you value and that share your values, right? That's, that's victory, right? That's, um, uh, we focus on politics, not because we want to win at politics, but because we want to create space to live meaningful lives for ourselves and for our families and for, uh, you know, for our children and our grandchildren and so on. There's a great John Adams quote, which I'm, I'd mangle if I, um, if I tried to repeat it now, it used to be my screensaver, but it's about how, you know, we, we study politics and war so that our children can study uh, philosophy and art. And, you know, it's a, but the idea is that that's victory. Um, victory is not owning the libs on Bill Maher. Victory is making it so I can live my life without being so worried about who wins the presidential race, who wins the governor's race. Um, uh, and so, you know, we need to understand what victory is and what winning is. And there has been a lot of winning. Um, if you look at how hostile the law was to various types of religious practice 30 years ago, if you look at um, uh, the extent to which, uh, you know, the sort of wrongheaded economic policies of the 1970s, um, uh, there was, there's been lots of progress in understanding of free markets and the role of government and so on. Now, there's no end of history. <laughs> Um, right. The, the victories aren't permanent and, and some of us have to spend our lives or, or, you know, focus on these questions because there are folks that, that want to do bad things. But the idea that, that there isn't progress is, is, is crazy. And the example that people use to, to attack the conservative legal movement you know, from the right, um, is, you know, a couple justices um adopted a ostensibly textualist interpretation of a statute to to reach a conclusion that we all know the political process was going to reach um and that the political process could change as if it wanted to that that is the big betrayal it is really missing the forest for the trees, right? I mean, the, the, the Bostock, the, case, the, the Title Seven case, is a statutory interpretation case. If, if that's the fight you want to win, and you think winning is important, well, then win it the way you normally win statutory battles, in the legislature. Um, uh, you know, I, I happen to think that, that Neil Gorsuch's opinion in that case is unpersuasive. Uh, I think that the most persuasive argument for that outcome um, is one he didn't make for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, but, you know, the idea that that is somehow more important to religious communities than um, the, the Supreme Court's free exercise holdings of the last several years is, I think, I think really missing out on what's important. Um, the Fulton case is going to be more important than Bostock 
for the ability of traditional religious communities to live their lives in accord with their values. And that's winning, right? I mean, winning is 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 the quiet evening I can spend with my kids. Um, they're teenagers, so on those rare nights they want to deal with me. Um, uh, right? That's winning. Winning isn't, the, you know, a, having more people at your rally. I, 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 yeah, I mean, there's a whole loss of perspective that that that. Yeah, I mean, I, there's that, I mean, worries me, and I think you don't see as much of it as I do, um, because you have better. I, I'm sure through. I don't. That's a benefit of living in Ohio. Yeah, but I mean, like <laughs> uh, Kurt Schlichter, who I don't follow, but every now and then something he says bubbles to the surface. He had this tweet thread the other day about how. Um, basically we need to nationalize the universities, nationalize social media, outlaw, uh, critical race theory and woke ideology, force universities to accept conservatism as their standard of ideological thought and, you know, and uh, throw people in jail, yada, 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 yada. And, um, I don't think Kurt Schlichter is a serious person. I think he's very good at articulating. I think some of it's performative nonsense, but He's very good at articulating a certain part of the sort of rabid nationalist id, which manifests itself in all sorts of other places. And I think the hungry stuff is another example of it. The, there's a guy at American Greatness who just wrote a piece about how we have to pursue the Salazar option, which is to emulate the Portuguese dictator and wipe out our enemies. I mean, there's an enormous amount of apocalyptic civil war porn going on out there on the right. And a lot of it is just entertainment BS. And I, I have to check myself before I wreck myself by taking it too seriously. But the fact that there's a market for it is very disturbing. Yeah. And yes. no, um, I, I agree with that. So, no, I mean, so, I mean, the thing that, that gets me though is, and this was, you know, this came up in the debate, the, the Frank Meyer discussion and the kind of the, the, the exchange that I had with Henry Olson uh, on, on Stephanie's essay that, you know, let's assume that um, I, I was, uh, sufficiently unconvinced by Hayek and Burke and other folks that, 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 that centralized decision-making of the sort that Schlichter is talking about could be desirable. Just at a pure practical level, where are all the conservative mandarins that are going to man all the institutions necessary to maintain that going to come from? Because if what we really care about in the end are the things we say we care about, family and community and those sorts of things. We're not going to spend the time doing that. And so that, you know, and it's not just a, oh gosh, you know, this, it's not, it's not the kind of the old fashioned liberal argument about, you know, we, well, what if it was turned against you? It's the reality is it will be turned against you because our people, so to speak, aren't going to spend their time manning all of those barricades or those, um, those institutions they are not going to be filling those offices. The people that are going to fill those offices are the people that are the people that lay awake at night worrying that somewhere someone has invented something without government permission or that somewhere had an unwoke, somebody had an unwoke thought, right? Those aren't our people. <laughs> and, and the idea that you could create that sort of state and that it would maintain an adherence to the things that Schlichter wants them to be, to, to be, to, uh, you have to be so ignorant of history and human nature to believe that that is a possible steady state outcome. It's just not. 
we might get a, maybe we'd get a few years of it, right? But you know, um, it's it's yeah, I think it's 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 in, it's incredible folly. Um, and you know, and this re- does relate to you know my 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 peanut butter of federalism that you you mentioned <laughs> at, the, at the top of the show, right? Is that, you know, decentralization is 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 itself kind of a risk management structure and um unless you really believe that the that that the that the vast majority of motivated folks agree with you centralization is hugely risky right because under most scenarios you're not going to be in control now whether it's the AOCs that are in control or it's the 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 Stephen Millers that are in control or it's the uh, Bernie Sanders is that are in control or the Hillary Clintons that are in control. You know, who knows? But it's not going to be you. Um, and um, in most scenarios, right? I mean, you know, the, the integralist view of this stuff is ultimately grounded in the idea, I would argue, that, well, enough people will be converted that it will work out. Maybe, but, you know, I... I'm not, I'm not going to put my eggs in that basket. I'm also not a Catholic, but, um, but, but, but why would you make that think that's a good bet? Right. Um, yeah. No, I mean, like I, my, I wrote about this last week, but like, you know, um, if you really think the Hungarian model for whatever bizarre reason is ideal, why you want to bring it at the federal level? What, make Rhode Island Hungarian, right? I mean, like, Find some or Peoria. I mean, find some town where you can actually get the scale of people that actually agree with you on this stuff. This is the Im- embedded thing in Patrick Deneen's book about like little communities and all that. But then he, you know, he starts lending rhetorical aid and comfort to people who talk about doing this crap at a national scale. Hungary doesn't have a great case of federalism, but you could have like a little sort of, you know, Catholic integralist kind of community somewhere. And like, I wouldn't want to live there, but. If, if enough people want to live there, they can live there. But here's the thing, right? Is that, is that, is that if, if they were really confident that it would actually produce better outcomes, they should actually want that as well. Because if Hungary and I, you know, Rhode Island, because I, I, right, are they changing their name again? Uh, they, they changed their name at one point. Um, or they, they, or they got the. Got rid of plantations. Of, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if, you know, Rhode Hungary or Hungary Island or whatever it is really produced happiness and human welfare it would replicate right uh, um and and you know i mean it, it, we see this in all kinds of policy areas in ways that we don't understand that when states actually come up with good ideas uh, other states often follow and um uh, if 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 converting to catholicism and having an integralist state with you know the state control of the universities or whatever else it is that hungary apparently does so well really produced human flourishing, um, then you wouldn't just have it in one state. You would ultimately have it in, in, in multiple states. And I think that the unwillingness to push in that direction actually shows a lack of confidence in, in their own prescriptions, right? Because if you're confident, um, then you think that when you get your way in a small area, your right, your your ideas will be proven correct, um, and and I, you know, but 
you know, I think they're not confident. That's why they don't advocate for federalism, because they don't believe that uh, they don't have the confidence, the confidence in their convictions that, that their approach actually would be proven to enough people to be better. No, I think that's right. I think most of the stuff is really about power and people who obsess about power tend to do so because they feel like they can't persuade. Um, and so they want to sort of find a way to get some sort of Archimedean lever to, to, to steal a few bases and get their way without actually having to make the arguments, you know? And, that, and that's in a profound way. There, there's something anti-American about that. And what I mean by that is, you know, think about how this, how, how the, the, the country was, was settled and founded, you know, how, why Rhode Island was created, right? I mean, people wanted the ability to live their own lives, their way, and had a confidence in that it, it, they didn't have to force other people to live their way. And if other people in a different state wanted to live in a slightly different way, that was okay. Um, and you know, that, that is, there's something about that, that I, it would be really tragic if we, if we lose in, in, in terms of the conservative movement's understanding of that in terms of the country, right? That, that it's okay if people in California want to live differently than we do in Ohio. Um, um, and what matters is that I get to live the way I want to live in Ohio. Um, and, um, and, and not just me as an individual, right? My community, my family, um, you know, my, my tribe, my, my mediating institutions. Um, and it is disturbing how many people abandon that. On that happy note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh no, I wanted to get into some other, uh, geekery, but we've gone long already. I've, I've been, been rambling. No, no, it's great. I, I, I love it. Um, and we will definitely have you back. Um, because we have, there's, you know, have you seen Suicide Squad? I mean, there are things that I did. About. In okay. fact, I did. Um, it, it, uh, and, and the bottom line argument that it is the movie that the first Suicide Squad thought it was and wanted to be uh -huh. is true. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen it. I have. Um, yeah. Okay. So, no, we watched it last night. Um, uh, my daughter, uh, was very excited. Uh, my younger daughter, who's, who's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a comic and, and, and anime fan. And my wife was incredibly skeptical and about an hour in or 45 minutes in, she was like, Oh, this is, this is very entertaining. Um, it was really? fun. I saw, I saw it with my daughter in the theater where it should be seen. And as we were going back to my car, uh, I said to my daughter, I'm still processing. I think I kind of liked it, but I had problems with it. But the thing I really am having trouble getting my head around is how much, mommy my wife would hate this movie <laughs> um i mean it's like my wife doesn't not like superhero movies she does not like all the, the, the i it was like name the things in this picture that my wife would hate and there was just like a great number of them but um oh but my wife generally doesn't like superhero movies either she doesn't like it when um my daughter and i want to watch you know occasionally something will be on you know so she saw an episode of loki that we were watching and she was like oh no that's well, I like Tom Hiddleston and okay, that was kind of clever, but she does not get into it at all. Um, but she did like guardians of the galaxy and it's the same director. So did my wife. And is. I think, I think the kind of there's, there's, there's a, there's a chaotic, there's a, there's a chaos to the movie and just irreverence to the movie. Um, that I think she found some somewhat infectious apart from the fact that it was in her view, a dumb superhero movie, um, with, with, with Kaiju. Um, uh, which to me is like, you know, 
I know, I, look, I, mean, but, <laughs> I, I, I kept thinking, okay, what would 12 year old Jonah think about this? And 12 year old Jonah would like it a great deal. But um, the gun's commitment to whatever that was he was going for is really impressive, whether you liked it or not. Um, it kind of reminds me of some of the Coen Brothers stuff. It's like, I love the Coen Brothers, but there's some Coen Brothers movies that don't work for me. But I also still just like watching them to see how they they had an idea and they're going to stick with the idea all the way through. And that's what Gunn did in this. Um, I was underwhelmed by Loki, but we can talk about that another time. I, I, I wanted to like that a lot more than I did, but I, I thought it was... The only, the only really interesting thing to me about the Loki thing was this was the closest Marvel has gotten so far to basically endorsing the physics and metaphysics of the Into the Spider-Verse movie. Mm-hmm. Right. right? Um, because if you can have a pig Spider-Man, why not have an alligator Loki? Um, right. yeah. And uh, that I thought was interesting about what the future holds. But I, 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 I liked what, you know, I, at first I thought Loki might have been the, the best of the, of the Marvel uh, TV shows. I but, felt it was going uh, that way in the beginning, but yeah, yeah. I rewatched WandaVision, um, and part of it's the nostalgia. Part of it's the the all the references to, all, especially in the early episodes, to all the TV shows I grew up watching. You know, back on when I had to, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, that's all that was on the UHF channels. Um, uh, and um, the the richness of WandaVision. If you if you're if you understand that history and you understand, you know. This is Bewitched, and this is I Dream of Genie, and this is Malcolm in the Middle, and this is you know, and this is Modern Family, and so I mean, it is 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 incredible. Um, um, but, no, my um, daughter but wanted it, each each television genre to be a whole season and like not get to the the revelation until like five seasons in, which I think it was a bit much. Yeah, no, so but but um, but so I I did. Did like Suicide Squad? Did not see that. It saw Black Widow in the theater. Did not see that in the in the theater. Although I'll probably see it again, and we'll probably see it on the big screen. Uh, um, uh, apparently, I have to see Green Knight. That's what I w- I've been. That's told. what I hear. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. This is a much cheerier note to end on. So, with that, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. Um, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, so Jonathan Adler has uh, left the studio, and um, always great to talk to him. Um, um, whether or not he kept apologizing afterwards for ranting too much or rambling too much. And, um, and I, I didn't see it, but I kind of felt like Caleb Parker, our producer was nodding in absentia. Uh, but, uh, cause he likes things to be just on, to the, on time and to the hour and he's got other things to do and, and I just don't care. Uh, and so, um, it was, um, it's always good to talk to him. Uh, I had a bunch of stuff that I, wanted to follow up on, but it was more free ranging than I planned. So I will, fortunately I have lots of opportunities to circle back on things when I so choose. Uh, thank you for the feedback from listeners. It is very clear that they have certain expectations about how this podcast should end. And, um, until someone as, as one person said, I can't remember if it was in Twitter or an email, but until you can make, um, much like Chesterton's fence until you make, I can make a case for how this podcast should, uh, the end of this podcast should be torn down and replaced with something else. Um, it should remain where it is. Or as the Viscount, um, what's his name? Uh, oh God, no. Lord, Lord Falkland, I think it was his name. The guy who said, when change is unnecessary, it is necessary not to change. Um, that is one of my, um, my you know, I have that tattooed on my back. Um, so uh, we're sticking with what we've done. And, um, also my travel plans got all blown up. 
So I am not, in fact, driving cross-country leaving this Friday. Um, there was stuff that my daughter wanted to do in Washington um, with her friends before, uh, from high school before she went off to college. And uh, like Saps, my wife and I caved. Um, and so we are going to be flying next week, much shorter thing. And um, so I'll be, so you haven't gotten rid of me yet. And uh, with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>